Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams and I'm here with uh, the most special guest of all, the doyen of Rugby League history in Australia, our first three-time guest. Uh, it's Ian Heads. How are you, Ian? Very good. Thanks, Michael. Thank you for kind words. Thank uh, they're, they're very well deserved because I was saying to you before we started that in this project, I've now passed 900,000 words of compiled research notes. It's not an exaggeration to say some 50 or 100,000 of those are yours in between your books, Rugby League Week, the Sun Herald. Uh, so you were certainly crucial to journalism throughout the period we've been looking at. Yeah, oh, thanks, mate. You're very kind. Makes me think I've been here too long. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I've got a lot I want to cover today, but that that's one of the reasons I particularly want to spoke, speak to you is we chose to start our story with the Humphreys era. Yeah. There are a couple of distinct reasons for doing that uh the main one is the the way the humphrey story is bookended by taking the reins in 73 within a day of replacing bill buckley publicly saying in the press that we could bring in a super league uh, and then his eventual downfall in 1983 you could make a very sound argument that that is what set us on the path to everything that happened in 1995 Exactly, yeah. He was certainly, he was an action man. You've sort of summed him up there, Kevin. And uh, had his, he had his enemies and he's uh, a lot of supporters, but he uh, he loved the game and he uh, he was a bloke who got things done. You know, he had a, a uh, the league had strong leaders down the years, but he was certainly in, in that line. You know, he was a very forceful bloke and a, and a brilliant orator. You know, they called him the boy orator, and he was as good as you'd hear. You know, off the cuff stuff at a function or something, he was terrific at that. Mm. So he was a good leader, you know, with a bit of a modern thing about him at that time with um, Jersey Flag having gone, gone and then... Um, and then Bill Buckley. Bill Buckley too, yeah, who were uh, both really good, solid rugby league men. Buckley particularly, I thought, was um, an outstanding bloke. He worked for the water board, loved rugby league. He played it in the very early years and um, had a vision for it too, you know, which was a bit ahead of his time, really. He was... Um, his great passion was to, he wanted to build a, um, a super rugby league ground at Newtown on the brickworks there at Newtown, and he, he fought hard for that over the years, but um, money was short, I think, and I don't know how much support he had. It didn't happen, but I think it was a bit of a tragedy for old Billy. He, he, you know, he, he put so much effort into that, but he, a good man, a good straight shooter and blunt, and Monday nights down there were, uh, you know, I think he would pay to go into them because yeah. they were pretty pretty lively. <laughs> Spectacular at times, even, <laughs> was, fi- even fisticuffs once or twice. I was going to say, were you? There's there's some legendary stories of of brawls in the hallways. Were you personally witness to any of those? Well, I, I was there the night of uh, John O'Toole, and um, I'll come back to him in a minute. Um, but the, there was a wrestle through the, the big the big solid main uh, door uh, between these two. But there was a lot of um, 
very vibrant, um, you know, discussion in the rooms because Monday nights, I mean, it was be a wonderful presentation if you could put on one mm-hmm. on Monday night because they came from all over Sydney. They would meet in, uh, the delegates would meet, they had their particular hotels where they wanted to meet and they all got there early, had a few beers and maybe a few more when they got to the club. And then uh, by the time the meeting started, it was, you know, things were could get pretty fiery, which <laughs> they did from time to time. But um, it was highly entertaining and they were, they were really good, uh, great rugby league blokes, really, you know. And Humphreys, Kevin Humphreys, got together a group of those, or he had a group of sort of followers, Peter Moore amongst them, some others, um, who uh, were the sort of new thinkers. They were they'd moved on to the next generation after Bill Buckley. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. So the cartel, as they were known, mm. in uh, your book with Ken Arthurson, he talked about butting heads with Buckley, even though Buckley was someone he greatly respected. Yep. Uh, just that new generation coming through. Did you notice a difference in style or, or the way they operated between the cartel and, you know, the Buckleys, the faces of, of the earlier era? Yeah, I, I, th- I think so. I think the um, the Buckley era, I mean, they were just good, really good, solid working-class blokes who loved rugby league and had played it back in the very early days. So they had a great feeling for the game, but um, there was more um, a slickness about the, the next generation. of uh, They were... Um, Capable maybe of some new thought about how the game should go and maybe that led to what happened eventually. But um, uh, but just as committed, I don't think there was any, any difference in the commitment of a Buckley or, or a Humphreys or a Peter Moore. They loved the game and um, probably served it pretty well. I mean, there were, there were um, I mean, there were things we'll probably talk about along the way where they, uh, they came under the spotlight. But... Um, no, the passion of those blokes st- sticks with me still. How, how I'm, you know, and, and there was a really nice relationship with the uh, the media. One thing that sticks with me f- on those nights at the uh, Monday nights at the league, when there'd, there'd probably be five or six media people sitting at the table down the front. It was like an old uh, Greek auditorium, and the the, uh, the members of the committee would sit up there at the back, having had numbers of beers and things. And there would be the occasional sound of snoring would rent the room. You know, one or two might drift off. <laughs> that was part of it. But um, down the front, uh, Bill Buckley sat, sat behind us down the front and I was with, um, you know, famous league blokes, Bill Morty and uh, Ernie Christensen, Alan Clarkson, guys like that. We'd sit at a desk down the front. But um, uh, it was just one small example which sometimes shine on bigger, bigger light on things too. At a certain time in the meeting, Bill Buckley and then Humphreys, Followed him at the same pattern in later years. Gentlemen, we're uh, now going into um, committee phase, words to that effect, at which point the media down the front, there was a physical gesture of putting your pen down on the on the, on the the board. So we were not going to take any notes mm. at all. As if this, but they'd still leave us in the room. It wouldn't yeah. happen now. You know, I'm sure you know, the media wouldn't, wouldn't often get into a, uh, a meeting where you know, important things were discussed about the future of the game and all that sort of stuff. You know, but so there was trust on both sides from the uh, the uh, the league and the, the media responded to that. Although afterwards, when they would tap the keg in the uh, after the meeting, and um, the boys had had a few beers beforehand, and then they would tap the keg, and uh, there was a fair bit of discussion. Then we'd go on a little more privately, you know, between people, and yeah. uh, it got you know noisier and noisier. Really, there was, um, but it, it was a lot of fun. It was a chance for the media. I was a young media bloke then, to meet these fellas, and to, and there was there was that nice sense of trust there. You know, we were just we were like them. We liked the game. We were working class people, and it, it, it all worked very well. And even occasionally there'd be music there. Um, 
Harry McKinnon at North Sydney could play the uh, mouth organ. So he used to bring out the mouth organ. So some chance of a sing-along or... Uh, what was he like, blues-style harmonica? What was his... Um, no, I think it was pretty sort of traditional stuff, nothing too... But I think there was occasionally that they'd probably sing along a bit, but uh, it didn't happen every week. But, but they'd bring out the, well, the highlight of the night. Well, there's a few highlights of any night at the league, but it was when they... Uh, the ladies who worked behind would bring out the cold collation so they'd have this food, which was pretty ordinary, I've got to say. And the players, then having had several beers, would then hoe into the, uh, <laughs> hoe into the food. <laughs> so it, had a, it was a bit of a social thing, really, you know, yeah. but with a hard edge, you know, they would have made tough decisions. There were times when Buckley and, uh, and Jersey Flegg had sent blokes from the room. You know, the debate, the level of debate was got very heated at times. There were some really tough characters there, blokes who played the game at a high level. And, and uh, you know, the few beers in town beforehand had sort of uh, added to the uh, what was going on there. But, mm. So they'd be, they'd be solidly debated things. And there were some some great debaters in the room, I've got to say. Latcham Robinson from Newtown, uh, from uh, Balmain always sticks in my mind. Latcham was character and uh, he'd been a great player and great storyteller, really. But he, um, he would sometimes... Um, Days off, so as I said, the, loud, the sound of snoring would rent the room. You know, and they'd have to pause. But uh, so it was, it was, it was good. It was as good as going to the movies or something. Used to, <laughs> to be there. So uh, it was my growing up period. You know, so I look back on it now with a great deal of affection because they were good fellows. They loved the game. They played it. They'd worked worked for it. And uh, there were some really good pragmatic thinkers there too who thought about what like, should be happening with the game. Well, one of the paradoxes for me about Humphreys in particular is he had the reputation of a great orator, uh, you know, ahead of his time, all the rest of it. But he left the game in many ways on its knees. You know, crowds were falling through the bottom. There were all these problems, you know, the on-field violence, which he was starting to clean up, but all these other problems. And, and rugby league was in a very poor state at, at the time of incorporation. Um, how do you square that, you know, this talented guy with what the game became when he left it? Yeah, I think... Um... I think he, had, you know, he had a genuine love of the game and a belief that there are things that should get done. But he, he, um, you, you're quite right. There were things that should have should have happened that didn't happen. Whether he just didn't get round to them, um, he wasn't distracted by other things. I guess he was a he was a punter, and you know, we, you know that story of it um, sort of brought him down in the end. And he, he surrounded himself with a little group, the cartel. And there was some bit of talent there too. There were some good thinkers on the game there, but they were. Um, I think they just um, enjoyed being involved. I don't know whether the deep thinking that you know probably should have been pursued a bit more. Whether at times whether that went on it as it should have. But um, yeah, an interesting interesting figure in the game's past, Kevin Humphreys. Um, I would personally found him very good to deal with, but I was aware of uh, his his the drawbacks with him, and the, the punt was you know was a problem and. Um, but he was a, he carried on the strength of the to the two preceding um, chairman in that he was a tough bloke who uh, would make hard decisions. And there's a story that sort of reflects to my, something that stuck in my mind, which I've probably written about over the years, of which sort of uh, indicated the strength of the bloke. He was such a good orator, and there was a particular night, and there were probably other nights the same thing happened. But he had a there'd been a big debate in the room, and. Um, uh, Humphreys had overpowered, sort of overpowered the others, and he he would, he'd won the he'd won the debate. There'd been a bit of um, disagreement about it and that sort of thing, but he'd won the debate, and um, so he was it was a triumphant night for him. But 
was this great moment afterwards when one of the blokes, uh, Bobby Seabrook from um, Eastern Suburbs, he was a great character, Bob, who was another knockabout who played the game and that sort of thing. He was seen after the meeting de- being down at the front of the um, the front of the room, reaching underneath and moving things around. And someone said to him, "What um, what are you doing, Bob?" And he said. I'm just trying. He said, "I'm just trying to find the handle that Kevin's handle that makes all the hands go up." That's what he was saying because Humphreys had swept the room, you know, that night. And Bob pictured, and that's exactly what it was. You know, Humphreys had had a triumphant uh, meeting, and everything that he'd wanted done was passed. So Bobby sort of interpreted that in his own way, which was pretty clever, really. Um, turning to beyond Humphreys, did you was the the change instant once the league was? incorporated and you had a you know very new way of doing things with Bellew taking over and uh, Arthurson and Quayle you know taking command too did you notice that change immediately it was sort of gradual to an extent but then it accelerated I think that <clears throat> that feeling and there were per- per- people blokes are a bit more s- modern day savvy I suppose that um, uh, Quayle did a very good job you know and the others had had the sense of what was needed so um Maybe the fun went out of it a bit mm. to an extent, um, and it got you know with the, when the, the the war broke out and that sort of thing. I mean, it was pretty it was pretty really ugly stuff, you know. Nobody was laughing too much then, but um, so I, I think um, the, the the basic thing that these Bill Buckley's offside of the blokes who'd been his uh, running mates that sort of thing, they um, they remain strong in in the game, you know, because they love the game. I think that was it. You know, it had been part of their lives, their their whole lives. So it was a natural reaction, I guess, to try and get it right. And if you've got an interloper coming in trying to nick your game, well, you're going to fight back against it. And that's um, and they certainly they certainly did that. There was a lot of bitterness, and as, as you well know, you know, a bit of bitterness and argument. And there was an ugly, really ugly time, I've got to say, that developed. Mm. Probably said something for rugby league that it was a good and popular game. Which was um, well suited to television, had all the things going for it, you know. And um, uh, you know, it was a victim of its own um, success, I suppose. Mm. Well, well, just on that, just before we get to the war itself, mm. the Quayle and Arthurson relationship is something that I find endlessly fascinating. You have Arthurson as this, you know, he was a member of cartel, been with Manly since you know the late forties, rugby league man through and through. And and seems kind of of the old school, had that cunning, but the affability. He seems like a very traditional rugby league man. Quayle also, you know, played, you know, esteemed playing career, you know, on the border East Leagues. Rugby league man too, but had this newer style, maybe a more professional edge. Yes, more polish about him, I think, in that way. But um, funny enough, they worked whether, whether uh, I've never said to John Quayle, what did you think about Ken, you know? But they, it worked very well between them, actually, I must say, that um, Arthur's a very affable fellow. He's everyone's best friend. You know, if you went to a function with him, Arco, good to see you. You know, everyone was happy to see Arco. And yet he was a he was a skillful worker behind the scenes, you know, and Manly was the biggest thing in his life. And um, um, so he's a, he's a very shrewd operator, but the, the balance sort of worked all right. Quayle acquired his sort of um, education in those in those years, probably in fighting against the Murdoch the invaders and in um, becoming more of a businessman. and um, But he, um, I've never heard him, you know, speak um, in a derogatory way about Ken, although Ken, you know, had his enemies and they all did. There were a few, there were a few foods, feuds within the, within the structure. But um, 
He was a smart bloke who just knew how things worked. He'd been ahead a long time in rugby league and uh, certainly made his contribution. But uh, as I said, he and John, I think, worked pretty well together. Mm. When did you first become aware of Super League? Can you remember the, the first whispers you heard? Yes, I, I can. Um, there was a, an event that, that happened when the, the Super League, the heat, you know, was getting hotter. The the battle was building up, and I'd been on the uh, edge of it. I'd been at Rugby League Week for some years, and then I I left them, at the and um, just thought I did some writing for the you know the um, Sun Herald and later the, even the Murdoch Press, which I didn't expect that to happen, but it happened because for a particular reason. But um, John Quayle invited Peter from Lingos, was the uh, the number one rugby league writer at the uh, at the Mirror. He'd taken over from Bill Morty, learnt the ropes from Bill, I guess. And he and I, Peter and I, had gone sort of been a parallel careers, I suppose, almost. And uh, we, you know, we got on well together. We were, we were good friends and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, the, the the awareness came to me very strongly on a single night when John Quayle invited. Uh, Peter and myself and our wives to have dinner at his place at um, Centennial, outside Centennial Park, lovely spot actually. And uh, we went to that and it was there when it was right on the cusp of the uh, the story breaking about how big this was going to be. And I, I remember that so well, the, the dinner, he was, he was, amongst other things, Quail's a very good cook, so he cooked this beautiful meal, prepared all this fancy stuff, you know, <clears throat> which is, uh, I'd written somewhere, is not... Not a, renowned, not a renowned skill of rugby league administrators, I wouldn't think, but he did. Uh, so we had this wonderful dinner and just normal conversation, you know, nothing particularly being discussed. But at the end of the dinner, he said, um, oh, now I just want to talk about a few things that are happening in the game. So from that point, he, he took us through, Fralingos and I, through um, what was happening, this the gathering threat from the Murdoch company to take over rugby league and, you know, put it under their umbrella. And uh, so it became, went from being quite a, a relaxed, humorous sort of a dinner to something very serious. And that was, I'd been aware, there'd been um, hints, you know, Tony Durkin wrote a good piece about it from Queensland about the rumour doing the rounds about this invasion was coming, that rugby league was um, was going to change. Um, but that night, uh, Quayle really put us in the picture of what was going on. So that was my... Um, I hadn't been quite as much involved. I sort of did a little bit more in the background at that time, but uh, it was quite an education. I think that's what John wanted to happen. He wanted to say, "This view, blokes, I'm just telling you, this is what's happening." He said, "It's not a rumor or anything. This is um, what's going to happen. Is 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 a war, basically." So I, I take it then this would be before the February meeting where Packer came in. Would have been some point, say, between November and February. Yeah, probably. You know, it's hard for me to put a. Um, mm. A date on it, but it was it was before then. Yeah. So it was it was a uh, just Quail painting a bit of a picture about he'd had contacts from people telling him, you know, these are the these are the stories that are going around. This is happening, you know. So it was the sense of that building this, this was building. It was going to build into something very big. And the pack, you know, so many things happened from that point, didn't they? Mm. So what what were your thoughts of it, just as a pure concept, leaving out the the ownership and the bitterness of the rest of it out. What did you think of the idea? Well, I think the idea certainly had considerable merit. You know, it um, it was a um, it was a, certainly Humphrey's exit. Humphrey's left left the league with his sort of blueprint, which was a reduction in the number of Sydney teams and um, a change in the structure just to make the game um, more attractive to people and that sort of thing. So um, the idea was there. Um, 
But the idea that the uh, men around league hated was the idea of someone coming in, um, paying vast amount of, amounts of money to uh, players and, and heading to the courts and that sort of thing and stealing the game away. That's what they saw, this game that had um, been such a, a strong uh, factor in Sydney life, really, since, um, well, 1908 or soon afterwards. You know, it had been there a long time, been a lot of... Part of people's, a lot of people's upbringing, yours, mine, I guess, you know, my own um, involvement with it went back to um, being taken to a test match in 1950, Australia, uh, England versus Australia, by a couple of uncles, you know, and capturing at the Sydney Crick Ground in the mud, you know, all the dramas. But a wonderful and historic game. And um, at that, I was uh, then, uh, three, I was seven years of age, stood on the hill at the back, blokes near me stood on. Beer bottles pushed into the ground, and it was and Australia won the test, the first one in 15 years, I think it was, and um, that really imprinted. I felt there was an imp- almost an imprint. Then this was this was a that was something special in the game. You know, I had the building sense as a young bloke that the game was a special game, and I became an East supporter. <clears throat> We'd go to the go to uh, go to the games each week, get the tram or something out the. Red, you know, wherever we were going, you know, we made a mind on myself. We used to go and watch the game. I really thought the game was a terrific game, you know, and I'm sure that's my that view is mirrored in all those people who were involved. Maybe not the business people on the side; they just did the job, you know. Um, once Murdoch, really, once the Murdoch chase really became um, heavy, they had all professional people in there who were quite possibly not league people at all. They're not that interested, but they're interested in the um, concept of a business proposition, and they. Yeah, so it was it was part of the lives of all of all of us, I suppose. And um, as I said, certainly me. So at that dinner with Quayle, did he have his kind of backup already? He was, you know, digging in for a fight. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, he was a fairly he was a tough player. Quayle he was a good player, you know, really good mobile uh, back rower. And uh, but he played the game fair and hard, and he he played for Australia. Um, but I think then, yeah, he was mustering his thoughts and trying to get support around himself to to thwart any, any whatever challenge came. And he was to me he was the ideal bloke for it. He was the modern bloke, but also the bloke with the with an ancient love of rugby league. Mm. It'd been part of his life for, forever too. So he was um he was a good choice for the league. He was always going to make it tough for anyone that tried to take over the game and he, he did, you know, it was a hell of a struggle as we know. Which which is probably part of the reason that almost from the outset any talk of compromise from the Murdoch side Included Quail's head on the plate. Do you remember much of that, or if, um, if Quail talked well, I about think that? They, um, yeah, they came, they probably came to hate Quail. I think in the end, but it was that within its own way. That was a tribute to him, you know, that he was a he was a tough opponent. Really, the funny thing is now that he's accepted. You know, we're talking a long way further down the track. It's, there's acceptance there that he's a considerable talent in the game, and he has been all the way through. And if he'd been more, you know. They'd been more accepting of that during the Super League war. There mightn't have been a war. They mm. might have been able to work out something. Because I think Quayle had the theory that the game had to change. There were things that had to had to change within the game. But it just became a brawl, you know, to mm. we're bigger than you, we'll take over. And um, yeah, pretty ugly time. Well, let's turn to just after April Fool's Day. Uh, it just happened to coincide with the 25th anniversary of Rugby League Week. They'd planned out their anniversary edition uh, to come out on the Wednesday, you know, Saturday morning, the you know the raid happens and rugby league changes forever. Uh, I, I thought it was 
interesting that that I, I guess so much work had been done on the issue already, but Rugby League Week chose to still focus on the anniversary. And you know, I think Norm Tasker had a little editorial column going, "Oh, we're not going to let them be party poopers. We're going to yeah. celebrate, and we'll deal with the rest." Yeah, yeah. Um, do, do you remember like that specific time at, at Rugby League Week in particular? Well, yes, I certainly remember that time. <clears throat> so I was, I'd left, you know, I'd left them at, at that stage, but I was still writing. Um, uh, occasionally writing stuff for them, including a column, which was supposedly a mysterious column that nobody knew who wrote it, but in fact, <laughs> I wrote it. But uh, each week, um, so um, so you I, was you were still writing that in '95, the Sherlock column, were you? I, yeah, I mean the, the years run into each other a mm. bit, but I wrote it for quite a long time mm. because I enjoyed it. I had a bit of fun doing it, but I think it was a, um, regarded as something of a you know who is this bloke? But I, I put my hand up. It wasn't. <laughs> <in fact. laughs> But, uh, it was a bit of fun. I enjoyed it. And it was a bit. Of, you could get a bit of humour into it, but also some good, you know, some hard stuff. Just kept my handy, and I had to. Um, well, I was a father of two kids. I had a family black. I had to earn some money too, you know. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that rugby league week that weekend, you know, retained that, as you sort of suggest, a sort of traditional thing. I think that was in line with that magazine. Really, it'd been around a long time. Been a the bible. Wasn't quite that, but it was uh, very popular mm. and um, much sought after, and probably may well be missed these days. I don't know. Oh, very much so, or certainly by me anyway. Mm. Um, but the following week, when you know it could be avoided no longer, there's that famous cover: a game in ruins. Uh, you know, picture of the Dresden yeah. bombing on yeah. on the front. And uh, I mean, you've kind of spelled out maybe your personal allegiances. I think Norm Tasker was along the same lines. Uh, but very quickly, the the publication moved from a, you know, what's happening here to playing it pretty straight down the line, covering both sides of the game and, you know, that going all the way through to 97, covering both comps. Uh, do you, um, had you spoken to Norm about that editorial decision or was that something that was talked about? Um, I don't think I had any, any I, I certainly spoke to Norm, you know, we talked about, what was going to happen, but he—it he, was his certainly his belief that League Week had to continue to play a straight bat to an extent, but could certainly take a stance in in columnists and that sort of thing. And that happened. It's all so long ago; it's just hard for me to think to think about what it was like. Except that every week was a, a bit of a battle. But and I certainly, you know, I went on and wrote for the uh, writing for the Herald. And things I wrote some strong stuff, anti. You know, um, I was crooked on what had happened. You know, it wasn't a way to do it. I mean, they could have worked out. That's the thing that makes anyone who cares about the game a bit miffed, I think, to think, you know, you feel like shaking them and say, why didn't you do it that way? You know, mm. it was, it was, the game was always going to be a success. It was going to work for a lot of people, players, everybody, you know. But no, no you know, they went the other way. But, um, yeah, I didn't um, get too involved with the league week then, except I wrote, you know, wrote the column. Occasionally would write a feature story or something for them. But I'd, I'd left them and I'd, I'd moved on to the... Um, to the Herald, the Herald, and then the uh, the, the Sun Herald, you know, mm. that column there too. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, the the chance to, um, and I I probably got angrier too. I probably wrote some things and fairly bitter things in, but that's just the way I felt I felt about it. You know, it was actually we had a chapter of our series on the media landscape in 1995, and as a uh, case study in how sad and how bitter it got, I took some of uh, your columns, some of Norm Tasker's columns, and it was 
it was just really sad to put these all in a row mm. and and see both of you like you could see the spirit <coughs> and, and the, the passion for the game just like dwindling by the week <coughs> yeah it was very draining yeah that's for sure i mean norm um norm and i started together pretty much at the telegraph you know at the same time well i learned more norm was a might have been a year and a half ahead of me or something. It was copy boys and then, you know, cadet journos and things. But um, he, he went on the path. He, rugby was more his game, but he, he's, he was a keen league bike too. He liked the game of league as well. Covered the league for quite a, you know, on and off over the years as I did. And used to go to the Monday night meetings before I went. I think I took over from Norm to go down there. But, um, yeah, it did get, sort of got sadder writing about it every, uh, each week. Because I suppose you felt a bit, don't know what the word is, <clears throat> a bit helpless in a way. You know, this suddenly there's these towering giants with all their money and things were um, ripping and tearing at the game. You could provide a few words where you, you know, um, could say angry things about how you felt about certain things that had happened. But um, eventually I think we all realised it was going to have to work itself out somehow yeah. in the end. And that, that's the thing. Pretty quickly it wasn't just the, the Murdoch side that you were... Um, writing against you you had some harsh words for the ARL and what was happening on that side too over the course of the war are there any moments that stand out uh, or things you thought that the ARL weren't doing correctly I think I had the sense then of them going into the bunker you know sort of you know it it became like a war situation really and I I don't know that there was anything particularly different I think I thought um, I'd been good mates with Quail you know before that um uh, long before he came to Sydney, you know, and um, and I, I I was supportive of him and his his side and what because I believed in the fact that the league were being wronged, you know. But um, so I did try and be positive, I suppose, about um, him, at, you know, most much of the time. Um, I'm waffling on here a bit, but um, yeah, I, as for the league taking any particularly. Difference then, I think they're natural. I mean, they're tough guys. That's sort of thing. Their natural response to something like that is, you know, this is we're going to rip in here because we'll fight till the end and all this stuff. You know, that, there was talk like that too. So it was, you know, called the super. You know, super league war was right. Exactly what it was. It was a lot of a lot of ugliness, a lot of hatred. But um, certainly, I filled the newspapers, didn't it? It became a, <laughs> a good read. Every yeah, day. yeah. And let's look back on now, and it's you know it's settled down again. The game's back into a pretty good groove, probably. And it, it took us twenty five years to recover. To, <laughs> to, to, to... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, um, yeah. It was a painful exercise, you know. The, the game had experienced nothing like that, you know. There was a big threat from radio back in the nineteen thirties, you know. And there was a big battle on then. Because radio was going to radio had put into to broadcast. I think the game was first broadcast in the nineteen. 20s and then in the 1930s this radio similar thing probably in a way radio saw this a bit of a chance for us you know we'll call the radio thing radio we'll call the match each week but within the league itself at those Monday night meetings there was big um, uh, resentment to that because they could they they believe they could see all the punters staying away from the game because they'd be staying at home listening to their their little mantle radio. You know, they wouldn't be going to the football, which was drawing a long bay probably, but, yeah. <laughs> but it did exist. You know. <laughs> so that was a sort of a distant forerunner to uh, to rugby league. What uh, what happened with the league? I suppose that this sense of something being nicked away from them that was theirs, and they, you know, with all of those blokes, there was blood, sweat, and tears. They played the game hard at a very hard time. They 
they'd fought for it to get going, you know, in the early years, that sort of thing. So yeah, I can understand here. Yeah. And that, that, that message was carried on down into the more modern times too, you know. These the the Buckleys and those people, you know, that they, they were um, pioneering types who believed in the game and, and fought for it, you know. So they were always gonna fight for it. If, if it was still going now the war, they'd still be they'd be in there fighting, probably. Mm. And good on them, you know. <laughs> Uh, interestingly, though, it wasn't just the insiders. It wasn't just club bosses and, and game officials. One of the, the ugliest parts of the whole war was how the, the journalistic fraternity fell out. You had people on different publications never speaking to each other again and, and all this, like, bitterness going on. And, I mean, you were in the middle of that. What did you make of that side of things? Yeah, that was sort of unfortunate, I suppose, and, and, um, but not unexpected within the framework, the bitterness of the fight that was unfolding. You know, I, and I cop, you know, I was seen as a traditionalist who, I tried to, you know, write with balance and, you know, the things I wrote that were, but I did, I lent towards the traditional game because that had been my game too, you know. But I had a, you know, um, Peter Flingos and I fell out. We'd been mates, you know, over the years. Um, I think he labelled me a dinosaur. But... <laughs> I sort of accepted that quite happily because I'm, I don't mind dinosaurs. They're yeah. good survivors. You know. <laughs> been around a while. Speak to my son about it. He'll, he'll agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> so, and um, I suppose a good example that things eventually get um, f- fixed or they heal themselves in the end that Peter and I um, don't think we ever became great mates again, but by chance we both lived in the Eastern Service and we both used to walk dogs. So um, uh, I'd run, we'd run into each other and... We'd um, we'd have a yarn and talk and things, you know, and then it, and it, things things got better. He just got on with his life, and I got on with mine. And probably, the, and I saw him this night with uh, joy with my wife at the uh, the quail function where it, it all it all sort of blew up. And then I, I remember Peter at that being who'd been a traditionalist, you know, he'd he'd spoken to quail on the phone every morning or arco, um, and he was a good reporter. He'd done the job really well. But that night. His response was sort of largely him talking to himself. What am I going to do? You know, he, if he could see the game being stolen away, he, you know, I think he he um, he was genuinely concerned about what was going to happen. But what happened was he took a position eventually, and I, you know, I, I don't blame him for it. It just happened that he uh, he, um, you know, being part of the Murdoch press, I guess he felt. Whether he's you know looked after in any way, I don't know. But he was he was a well paid journalist as he should have been. You know, he was a good journalist. But he he took the line of supporting Murdoch, the Murdoch um, challenge. You know, and uh, that's the way business works, I suppose. You know. In your latest book with Norm Tusker, Great Australian Sporting Stories, you talk about uh, Peter Falingos and you called it the Road to Damascus moment of him, you know, the legendary story of him being pro pro ARL one day. Uh, going to a mysterious meeting, coming out and, you know, being Super League's biggest spruiker. And yeah. his credibility took a bit of a hit yeah. in the aftermath to that. And I, I think a lot of people, from what I've seen, weren't as forgiving as, as you were about that. Um, did you uh, go to his funeral? Yes. Cause I, I did, yeah, because I've known him a long time. We've been in the same business. Things have possibly healed a little bit then but we weren't ever uh, mates again except that we've finished up 
years later on a on a um, one of the kangaroo tours. I'd gone over there with a touring group, I think. Peter was there, and there were some other journos there and things, and I saw a lot of him there, and it was... Um, uh, by then, it had, you know, time's a great healer, isn't it? And I mm. think that, that had played its part too. That, um, but I don't think we were ever the, the great mates. You know, we sort of grew, always grew up together in the, in the in covering the game, learning the ropes from the Mike Gibsons and the and the uh, Ernie Christensons and the Bill Mortys and those sort of fellows. There were some terrific teachers then, you know. So we we learnt the ropes then, went slightly different ways, but then we took this. There was this great separation for. Um, quite a time, but um, you know, Peter uh, did what he thought was right. I'm sure, mm. um, but I I understand the anger of there were a lot of people very angry about uh, about about what he did. You know, there was there wasn't, you know, he just wrote it the way he felt he had to from that point onwards. I suppose. Mm. So uh, then he died some years later, which was very sad. You know, but um, yeah, so I don't think the game had ever confronted anything like that. There was certainly opposition amongst. Uh, uh, the newspaper people. It was very uh, hotly contested, you know, as the, as that world is, the media world. But um, had had something changed? Did something change at that moment, or were things already changing in terms of right? You know, journalists at rival publications, you know, interacting and fraternising. Had something already changed before Super League, or did that become a real turning point? I think a lot of things changed in the game. Then I think it was pretty. Stand again. The thing, one thing that we have that I, I don't think the current, you know, current uh, media people have this advantage. And there were things that blokes like Flingos, Mike Gibson, and I, and Clark, and so forth, that we had was the friendship factor with the game and 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 the teams and the clubs to an extent. I mean, we used to go in to a uh, go to a match, and then afterwards, inevitably, well, you would was part of the duty. You'd go to the dressing room and be welcomed at the door, usually with a beer. Come in, you know, come in. And then be invited to, um, you know, you had free reign to go around and talk to the players um, and uh, about the game and about what happened. And it was, just a, it was just a friendship thing. And that was all clubs, you know. You, that was the, that was the hard work then. So all of that disappeared, of course, once it became, once the battle went on, that was that was out the window. And I don't think anyone goes into dressing rooms now. Mm, no, you've got the media managers and all the rest yeah, of it. And... Yeah, yeah. And maybe that's, in a way, because it's, the media's got bigger, that's progress, I suppose. <coughs> Excuse me, in, uh, in one way. But it was a really nice thing to happen, you know. And you, there's a fair chance, too, that if you went to a St George match, you'd go back over to the club and have a, <coughs> a couple of beers with Frank Facer and the blokes over there. So there's that lovely link between that generation of sports journalists like myself and and Fralingos and the others, the younger ones, that we were accepted by the by the game, you know. And um, to to get to talk to a player, um, you know, in the years that I covered it, all I had to do was pick up the phone and ring them. You know, there wasn't any great. I didn't have to ring a manager or anyone. If if they thought you were fair income and you would re- report it fairly. That was as good as gold. I could ring Graham Langland, who would then abuse me, but he did it in a nice way. You know? <laughs> um, but it was like that with all, with all the players. And that's so, I, you know, when I think about m- me and rugby league, I, it's been a, certainly a fortunate life in having that experience too, of being able and then go away on the tours and be part of the Kangaroo World Cup touring teams, <clears throat> the fringe dweller, but still accepted as one of the one of the group. And again, that same access to dressing rooms and. A press con, special press conference every morning from Harry Bath or someone, you know. It was a lovely setup, you know. Mm. And I suppose life works like that. You, 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 you might go through a luck, lucky phase where you're doing something you like doing, but um, 
and then it can change pretty quickly, you know. And I've, I think the journalists today have got a much harder, much harder job um, because of the they don't get much connection with the player after the game, do they? No, do they, they get any at all. I, I, th- I, th- I think in in some I'm not a journalist, so I'm I'm not an insider. I know it's very difficult for them. There's there's no the you know calling the coach for the team list or you know just calling up a player out of the blue. That that seems to not be a thing that happens these days. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a harder gig, for sure. It's a, I think one of, at the Telegraph, one of my first jobs was every Tuesday night I had to do the ring around of the clubs. And that meant ringing some of these old crusty blokes and, you know, and all sorts of different types of fellas. But it was always very friendly. I'd ring up to get the team, so they'd mm-hmm. be in the Telegraph the next day, you know. So I'd ring the teams, and it was always, you were well, well received. Yeah, we've dropped that, so and so. And they, there might be a slight discussion about whether they should have or not, that sort of thing. You know. But um, so once again, yeah, that, that's just changed, I suppose, in life. Uh, so um, I suppose if I put it in quotes, I, I had a fortunate life in league mm-hmm. in, in covering it during that period and being able to go on the tours. And, the, you know, the, the interstate wasn't just... Well, the English tours here were terrific because they meant there was a whole education travelling around with the tours, playing, watching the English team play in Darwin and then mm. being part of following them all over the place. There was a lot of things you learned along the way, you know. And I learned a lot too from those old journos I mentioned to you of Morty and Clarko, who were bitter rivals and yet great mates too, both punters, and, uh, but respected each other. One, one never drank, one never ate. So they were rather different in their own way. <laughs> they were a colourful pair. The, I think I call them the odd couple in that uh, latest book, actually, the terrific blokes. You know, and they, there was generous help. I mean, I got the most help I got from a... a uh, as a young journalist, was from Tom Goodman. I was mm. working for the Telegraph. Tom Goodman was the great cricket and rugby league writer for the uh, the Herald. Wonderful bloke, Tom. Really terrific. Any help he could give, he would give. You know, even though I was in the opposite side of the fence. You know, that was a really nice thing about league. You know, and so it was just when it blew up. You know, that was a shame. All of that was gone. You know, forever, I suppose. Pretty much. A really striking thing I've found in my research. This was an article you wrote in early. I think it was March. March 96, the the title of the article was The Game's Soul is Bleeding. Mm. It was a withering article. I mean, written uh, in strong words, not not mean words, but um, very sad portrayal of, of how everything was happening with a lot of, you know, pointed criticism of the ARL. Mm. The following week, you turned over your column to the ARL to write their rebuttal to what you'd written. And I... I flabbergasted to see that you could not imagine a scenario today where something similar would happen uh and what i thought of was that maybe for you and from the administration side there was an idea of like a mutual obligation yeah i think that's a fair point i mean i don't um specifically remember though you write so many words over the years i suppose that um it all runs into each other a bit but um yeah i mean i I, I sort of um, I, I didn't reconnect with the um, with the new games or the both of the clubs that had broken away to any great extent, but I did to an extent because I knew that I knew. I mean, I was still a journalist, and I, I knew you know the Peter Moores and the Charlie Gibsons and all those people. Not that Charlie went across, but Peter Peter was you know a strong figure in the game, obviously. But he was a genial fellow who I toured with in a way, and that, and that you know that sort of friendship you don't gun it down straight away, you know. So. Um, there was a bit of that went on, but um, yeah, it's funny when you you mentioned stories that I wrote. And I um, 
sometimes I look at the piles and my, my wife probably does too, at my office and thinks, what the hell, I mean, I, I can't believe sometimes they pick up stories and I think, I didn't write that. But I, I did, of course I did, you know. So, um, no, it was, it was good, you know, and it's good that the record's still there and I'm going to try and retain that. I'm not going to burn it or anything. Mm. Well, my wife might overrule me. <laughs> this is possible. <laughs> and, I mean, just after, you know, or as the war was settling down, you wrote the, the Ken Arthurson book with him, which is an amazing document of the time. Like, he, he really seemed like an open wound, uh, yeah. the way it comes off the page then. Yeah. Can you remember his state at the time, like the, his emotions dealing with yeah. everything that had happened? Yeah, and I think it's a good phrase you use. You open with. I think he was really hurt by it because he genuinely loved the game, okay? And he loved Manly a bit more probably, a fraction more, but not that much more. But um, so he, he, he had that um, – and he played the game, you know, in his career. It was He was lucky to be alive. He got seriously injured playing rugby league because that never – Never dulled him on the game. He loved the game and uh, loved the friendships of it and uh, all the um, the sidelines, you know, and a very affable bloke. He was a good foil for Quail because Quail was more blunt about things. Arco's more the... Um, he took a softer line to an extent. He was a hail fellow, well met, Arco. You know, if he walked in here now, you'd say he, his demeanour would be how pleased he'd be to meet you and, and he, he'd be genuine, you know. So he... Uh, but he, yeah, he was very hurt by... The whole thing had probably shone through in that book, didn't it? I think it just the thing galloped away from him. Mm. I think he probably thought initially he might be able to put it, put the lid on it, but it was never going to be easy to do that. Yeah, I mean, reading it, you know, twenty odd years later, I'm, I'm, I was actually stunned that, and you know, happily, happily so that he's still with us now and, and seems to be going well at, at nine yeah. years of age. But yeah. he really seemed like something had, had broken at that point yeah. in him. There's a story I, uh, which is at the back of my head, which is. About he and Peter Moore, you know, they they were um, they were genuinely very good mates, and you know they were part of the cartel of the league, and they were good thinkers on the game, and they so they're good contributors really in their own way. Well, this particular day, which I'm, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this in uh, uh, in private our private um, talks, but um, of an event that launch of that book actually at the, the hotel in Sydney, the um, Hyde Park Hotel, I think it was. Of uh, where the book was launched, and all there was a big team of rugby league people invited there, and it was right in the middle of the, the Super League, the nastiness, you know, at that time. And there's Arco, it was, I suppose, the fact we had a book launch, you know, it was the publishers who was probably Pam McMillan, I think, I can't remember, but um, <clears throat> so they had a book launch there, and people gathered to, um, Arco's friends gathered, but um, the, the, the sight of the evening to me that night was. Bullfrog Moore walking into the into the building and and walking down to where, where Ken was there in the front and I he hadn't been invited to the function I don't think he certainly wasn't invited by the publishers or whatever but he he turned up but he turned up out of friendship you know I did speak I spoke to him afterwards that night I said and, I, and when I think about it now I think that's one of the bravest things I've ever seen because all these all these the now um, rugby league enemies the um, People were doing him because they, they thought he'd. They didn't. I think they didn't trust whether he he'd been honest about what had happened at Canterbury. You know that Canterbury players had switched switched across, and I think John Quayle probably always thought that um, that Peter Peter had been involved in that because he was involved in everything else. He ran the club, you know. But um, anyway, this this night, and I said to him, uh, 
you know, I said something worth the words I just used, and I said that's. So I'd been on a couple of tours with Peter, and I liked him, and I liked him, genial fellow, and all that. And I said that's that was a very brave thing you did coming here tonight, because there was plenty of dark faces around the room, scowling faces that he was there. And he said, well, he said I had to be here for Ken. He said we've been mates throughout our life. So he did that, you know, and it was must have been a hard thing to do because mm. you know, he knew he was going to walk past a really angry mob. And uh, but he did it, and. Um, Again, that was, a, I suppose, a throwback to the old spirit of league and yeah. friendship and all of that. You know. Yeah, it's it's one of the, the like genuinely beautiful things in in this ugly time is you could see these two blokes just determined that whatever was whatever else was going on and wherever the situation finds us, we're going to hang on to what we've had for so long. Yeah, yeah, I think it might have been as sort of sealed in those blokes as well as you put it there that it was. That they, all the things that happened in league in the past meant a lot to them, and, uh, and the friendships particularly, I think. So yeah, but anyway, yeah, that that night's always. Um... And the other the other thing about Bullfrog too, who was a controversial character in the whole, you know, the months that went on. You know, he was he had plenty of enemies, and I bet he caught plenty of flack too. But uh, he he became very ill, Bullfrog, and he had cancer surgery, and um, and he was on fading. And um, I'd been in touch with the family and things, and um, and we got the message from uh, one of the, one of the one of the boys, I think, that he was at a pretty low ebb. And I said, Is it, "Can we? A couple of the guys would like to come and see him. You know, we'd like to come and say hello." He said, "Yeah, that'd be terrific for him." So I about um, these are all sort of this lineup that I can think of. We're all pretty much proactive. Traditional rugby league blokes, you know, and they were with a doubt, doubt about Bullfrog, you know, what he did. But there were about six, seven or eight of us turned up there. Gary Lester and Prenter was there, I think Jeff Prenter and Alan Clarks and myself and a few others to, start, to say, you know, it was our farewell to Peter. And it was a very emotional sort of event, you know, and he mm. appreciated it, there were tears and and all sorts of things. And, the, the, um, and he had been a really good friend. He understood how the media worked. You know, he had that sense of how it worked. The other thing he, he did several times was when I was away on tours, kangaroo tours, which and uh, leaving Joy, my wife, here, and she was uh, with two children and possibly a dog. Um, she, you know, life wasn't easy. I'm gone for some months, you know, covering tours in England and France. Peter was the one bloke who now and then would just give her a ring just as... Give her a call and say, uh, just wondered how you're getting on. Mm. Um, conveying that message, which said a lot about him too, I think. There was nothing contrived in it. He just, he knew Joy, knew me, you know. We'd, uh, so they're the sort of nice things, you know. They're mm. part of the nastiness in a way, but they're, um, there's those sunbeams within the, the, the whole fairly dark story of the Super League thing, you know. Good things like that. Yeah. It was probably the highlight of my research journey so far was researching our bullfrog chapter, which uh, you you gave us some great help with. But uh, what a character! Like yeah. he he's got to be one of the all timers, right? Yeah, I think I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, great sense of how things worked. You know, was, uh, uh, oh, the other the other story that bullfrog. If we're talking about bullfrog, yeah, the other story that always um, the vision that stays with me is being away on the tour. No, kangaroo tour was not. I'll tell you that story. I don't know. Anyway, 1978, the touring, touring, the touring team playing in England, training hard. 
but being at training and this and there's all they're all gathered there at training. And I we used to well, I used to go with the other the journos in case something happened, someone broke down or something. But um, and there's great excitement and there's oh there's this big event on. Bullfrogs challenged Larry Corowa to a hundred metre sprint. Larry Corowa being the fastest man in rugby league by a fair space. Brilliantly quick, you know, Aboriginal athlete and great tourist on that tour. He did a great job, Larry. And Bullfrog, who did do some push-ups of a morning, I can remember, on the tours. I recall that, but um, was not built for speed. Bullfrog, you know, he carried a bit of weight and things. But um, anyway, so they all there were some bets went on, you know. And, and it, um, the, thing, the race was finally run. Started in a traditional manner with a you know, clap of the hands and off they went. With Bulldog had a handicap, you know, so he got the handicap. There's, uh, there's Bullfrog, rather large, and Larry, very athletic and trim. And they ran the 100 yards. You wouldn't want to know Bull, Bullfrog won it. Larry took some ground off him, obviously, yeah. but, but Bullfrog somehow won it. But then he, he told us, talking afterwards, he said, tell me, you know, he said, there's a, there's a, there is a, um, uh, a formula about that that if you can in in a running race if you give someone you can give you can give someone a certain amount of start you know which is a fair lump of start you know you know and and, and win or you, if you get that much start in a race you can beat quick blokes you know because it, it's something about the, the the trick of the eye or something and that that's exactly what happened that day everyone thought Larry's going to win and Larry probably thought Larry's going to win <laughs> but they didn't know about Bullfrog's little you know his little uh, this little plan he had where he, he moved a bit quicker than they thought. So there it was. That was there the day that Bullfrog beat Larry. <laughs> I'm sure the guys on that tour still talk about that. Yeah. Wonder uh, what happened. Um, just, just to finish up, I wanted to talk about your, you know, exit from the game in terms of being, you know, a regular writer in, in, in the papers. You moved over to the Murdoch side uh, some stage 96, 97 around then, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, can you talk about that move and, and how that played out for you? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the fact of... Um, it was a, a sort of muddled time in my career with the Super League thing raging around. And, and uh, I I wrote for the the um, Sun-Herald for probably a few years, several years, and enjoyed it. You know, good staff there and good, good, um, good editor, good sub-editors, and I enjoyed it a great deal. And um, I wrote probably some reasonable stuff there, actually. So I enjoyed doing that. And I was, I was always going to go there because it was, I wasn't going to go to suit the Super League um, side of the fence, you know. So I, I would write <coughs> for them. And they wanted me to write objectively and do that, you know. So I did, and I enjoyed that thoroughly. And then there came to a, um, I, I can't remember the, the, you know, the dates or the times. The, the end of, there was a change of staff there. And they, they called me in and they said, there's a new sporting editor. And, and a, his assistant, there were blokes I didn't, people, blokes I didn't know, and they talked about, oh yes, well you've done some good work for us. And there was this conversation, you know. I said, but we've decided um, we're going to have to cut you back. And they, so I mean, I'm a bloke. I wasn't playing. I wasn't writing for much. There wasn't much money. It was a fair. What I got was a fair for what I did was reasonable. But these blokes, one of them who I'd, I'd known before, I didn't like him much. They said, we're, just, we're going to have to chop you back. We've fallen, you know, times a bit hard. But they cut me back quite substantially, and I had a family to feed and so forth. So I, you know, I wasn't happy about it, but that's their call, you know, so they did it. But um, then probably a few weeks after that, I got a call from the Telegraph. Might have been Buzz Rothfeld. I think Buzz was involved in the thing. And he said, um, just wondered if you'd 
do you might be interested in having a talk about uh, the Super League thing was rolling and I'd written a lot of stuff and probably, I, you know, there was a little bit of respect for me as one of the senior blacks in the game, that sort of thing. And so um, I went and had dinner, uh, lunch with Rothfield and one of their um, murder bosses there and they made, they made me an offer, which I, you know, I thought, I can't believe this has happened, but it had. And it was substantially more than the, um, the offer from the other place. And, they, and, they, and there was all these reassurances, which most of which they kept up to, I must say. You'll have a free, you'll have a free reign, you know, you can write, write what you like. But sort of, I think, you know, my nine wasn't too bad. They were keen, you know, if they had me on board, it's not going to do them any harm. So with great reluctance, in a way, I accepted it. I said, because I was mainly to do with my personal situation, you know, trying try to earn a living. So I did. I wrote, I wrote for the... Um, I can't remember what I would have written for them, but I wrote stuff for them. Uh, I don't know if you've got any of that. Have you? Familiar? I'm not up to that yet, no, but okay. I'll, I'll be coming across it soon enough. Interesting on that. <laughs> but um, anyway, so I finished up. Yeah, I was. I was. I think some people were. You know, I didn't feel I had to explain myself, but some people were disappointed. You know, they were surprised that I would do that. But you know, blood sort of thicker than water, isn't it? And I, I did it for a very fundamental reason, I guess, that I would been earning good money, and I thought I'd been doing. A, a, pretty solid job for the uh, I was just dirty on the way they did it you know mm. it was very abrupt and all that so I was dirty on them you know, but I'm finishing up at working for the um, Sunday Telegraph I didn't think I was going to do that either but um, anyway I did yeah so it was a bit of a, a surprise to me too and can we talk about that exit from the from the Telegraph a couple of years after that yeah yeah I um yeah, I'm just, again, I'm not sure of the time factor. I was certainly with them for a while, and, and to their credit, they um, they, go, they gave me pretty much a fair go. You know, I wrote. I mean, I didn't rip in and say Ruben Murdoch's a mug or anything, but I um, I I wrote some stuff that was certainly negative from their point of view, without any question. But um, with South Sydney under the hammer and uh, uh, the pride of the league, a club I'd always had great respect for and um, knew their history so well, and um, they were, you know, they were. They were looking shaky, and that's when all the fight back began. And the, the, the Super League war was thoroughly underway. They were with South at the heart of it and fighting for their lives. But the um, I wrote a piece for them on Saturday morning about the big march that was coming up the following day, which was um, a march to help with the cause of saving South Sydney. Could have been the Friday, right? A Friday or the Saturday that week, anyway. And I thought it was a strong story because I knew then they would, they'd tell me that this very elderly man who was part of. So sorry, I just lost mm-hmm. his name. Actually, I don't know if you've got it there. I've got it. I'll think of it in a sec. But he um, was a wonderful supporter of South and had given away his treasures to... Oh, is this Raven. Albert Clift? Albert, Cl- yeah. Albert Clift, yeah. Albert Clift it was, yeah. And uh, he was going to lead the march in a wheelchair to the town hall and there would be this great march of protest at the um, to the town hall. So I wrote a piece. It was on the Saturday, actually, for the um, which was going to be... was for the Sunday... Telegraph, which was a news story about the, essentially about the fact I'd, I'd rung around the bush a bit and there was this great, uncovered the fact that very many bush people were coming to Sydney to march in the march because they felt so crooked about what was being done to South, the, the pride of the league, the most achieving club in the league, producer of wonderful players and that sort of thing. And it was a pretty solemn kick in the teeth, which I don't think New Zealand had ever quite realised what in, in tack, taking on South, you know, what realised. So I I wrote a piece and I said it would be probably the biggest sporting protest march ever held in Australia. Um, 
So um, anyway, they didn't run the story. That was the, that was the fact. They managed to to uh, next day the story d didn't run, and I think the following day I don't think they that's probably in one of those pieces there, but they didn't cover the march, you know, which was a lead item on television channel channel nine and things. So um, I that weekend whenever I saw what had happened, you know what they'd done, they just that was it was so arrogant to say, oh, we can we can just we can just ride over this, you know, this is. This will be okay. Um, and then the next was a Sunday, and I went, went to a family gathering somewhere, and I'd been mulling over what I was going to do. And it was then, it was on that day that I made my decision I was going to pull the plug. <coughs> so I rang, um, I don't think they worked the, uh, oh yeah, no, probably the Monday, I think it was the Monday, I rang Telegraph Sporting's uh, sporting editor, and it was a fellow I got on with very well. Good luck, and they'd been okay to me, you know. Um, and I just explained. I said, I, I'm very busy in what I'm doing in my life. I said, and I explained I thought they'd done completely the wrong thing. In uh, brief terms, I didn't make a huge issue of it. I just said, that's, I don't, giving you my um, resignation. So uh, that's what happened. You know, certainly that I'd had a, in a way, it was, a, it was a, something that lifted off me a little bit to an extent that I was surprised, I was still surprising myself that I was working for years later. You know, people had said things to me, including a few sharpish things that they thought they didn't think I'd be there working for them mm. and I probably didn't do that you know but I was I was but um so I pulled the plug and that was it that was pretty much the end of my sort of my rugby league career in, in that form you know but I mm. managed to soldier on and do do some stuff write some books and there's always another so another other doors open so <clears throat> I didn't regret it there was I felt pretty good about it you know I yeah so j just to finish that's a sad ending to that chapter of your life in a very sad chapter of the game's history. Where are you now with rugby league, looking back at all of that and, and where you're sitting now? How are you feeling about the game? Um, I'm feeling okay, pretty okay about it. I, mean, I feel very detached. I'm not, I'm not really part of it anymore. I'm, but I watch I watched the game still. I think uh, it's developing, you know, it's, it's I hate that word product. I won't use that, but it's... Um, it's a terrific um, television, uh, exciting medium, really, to see up close, to see what what goes on. You know, it's such a fierce game. <coughs> it's always been that way. It's the bigger athletes now, it's probably even fiercer than it's ever been. For, you know, they're huge players compared with some who played in the past. So I'm feeling all right about it. I'm still friends with lots of people in the game, and what happened with me was just something that happened. You know, I, um, um, I did continue to write for... Um, League week after that, when Norm was um, still running it, so I, I continued to write some stuff. You know, then I gradually faded back. To, but now and then, like someone calls me and says, "Oh, could you do us a piece on this or something?" So, so I haven't completely departed the building. I'm, yeah, I'm and still, and still involved with the the Hall of Fame, the Immortals announcement yeah. uh, last year. Yeah, yeah, that's um, yeah. Occasionally, I've done I've done things for the league, and um, I've just written a. Um, Oh, a big piece on the um, the fact of my um, having been at that the Sydney Cricket Ground at um, that famous day in 1950, straight away going the Ashes. You know that was the beginning for me. Well, the endings come sort of since, but I'm still around. But I've written a piece just I, I really dug deep into the that day, what it was like from a personal point of view. Me as a kid standing on the hill, a short-sighted young bloke actually, so I wasn't probably wasn't seeing that well, but 
still remember all the things, the hats going in the air and all the rest. So I've written a piece about, about that for them. So I occasionally get calls like that, you know, too, which they'll run in a magazine somewhere and um, I'll tell you if I've done something yeah, else. <laughs> but in the meantime, I think we've brought it full circle now. So um, that, that was great hearing all that in. So thanks so much for joining me today. It's a, it's a great pleasure, mate. Thanks for your patience and your... Uh, yeah, assistance in guiding an old rugby league scribe to appreciate <laughs> okay, it. Good luck with the project too, mate. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Okay, we will speak to you next week. Okay. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.